Good morning. Um, I, I know Mike and others will usually pray right here. I'll pray in a moment. I feel like first thing sh- that should be done is an introduction. For those of you that might not have been here on s- last Sunday, I was a bearded man that Sunday. I'm now clean-shaven. Um, so you may not recognize me or you just don't know who we are. Um, my name is Steve Green. Uh, my wife, Grace, is in the purple, the beautiful lady there in the purple waving. And then my uh, daughter, my two-year-old daughter, Ruby May, or Ruby, is right there in the flower dress. Hey, Ruby. And then my son, Samuel, um, who is eight months, uh, dressed to the nines, I see. So um, so that's, that's the family. That's the Green family. Um, we, we were here uh, three years ago. Um, I first started attending Lion Lamb Church in 2005, um, was here for almost five years and knew that God was calling me to seminary and us to seminary and by uh, your all's gracious provisions have actually been supporting us at uh, Covenant Theological Seminary, which is in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I am there and I've been there for three years. I'll be there for one more semester, praise God. One more semester, and then I will hopefully, Lord willing, graduate with the Masters of Divinity. Um, and so we're here. This is kind of the kickstart. I guess this week has been kind of the kickstart of our internship at Lion and Lamb Church. Um, we're here for two months. I'll be teaching either here uh, the Sunday mornings twice uh, through Sunday school's uh, lessons, and then also Imago Day. We're also scheduled to be attending some uh, community groups. And I, I can just tell you, we... We don't know some of you. Uh, this church has grown since we've been gone, and we've really, I don't say this, uh, I don't say this falsely or um, whatever, I, we really do covet your conversations and uh, those relationships. So if you do not know who we are, um, please, by all means, introduce yourself to us. Um, we'll be here for a little bit after uh, service, and we want to get to know you all. That's part of why we're here for the internship, especially. Now, the reason why I'm a little distracted is I'm looking actually at the outline uh, that I sent out to Patty Ann, who is so sweet to print these off and is so timely. And uh, this is actually my, my first draft of my sermon outline. This is not the sermon outline handout that was supposed to be in your bulletin today. So it's going to be a little, uh, a little hairy to say the least. I just like, it's like the, the classic intern, you know, mistake. So uh, anyhow, it's, it's different. Um, as far as the scripture, we're still going to be in Ezra 7.10, so that doesn't change. But just um, especially maybe a, a, a verse that you could write down right now would be Psalm 78, and that's verses 5 through 8. That will be in part 2 of the main point. Um, but I mean, it's, it's still pretty much all there, so we're, we're good. Um, with that, would you, uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are thankful that we could wake up this morning to just cool, cooler weather and rain and just a beautiful uh, sunrise. And Lord, we know that you are sovereign over all creation, that, that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And that's what we get to wake up to. And now we get to enter into fellowship with each other. Lord, we may have had just a, a heck of a week. Uh, we don't, you know, who knows the amount of loss or pain or joy that we've gone through this week, Lord, but now we come here together as a body to just rest in your word and rest in worship. And Father, we ask that you would, that you would bless us during this time. Father, help us to have hearts that are set on you. Thank you for your, Lord, or for your son Jesus, through whom we have life. 
Lord, we ask that you, his, his presence would be with us and that we would be empowered through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> In a 2001 interview with Time magazine, uh, Woody Allen discussed uh, the circumstances revolving around or involving uh, an affair that he was with, a scandalous affair with Soon Yi. Now, some of you may have remembered that story. Others may not. Um, Soon Yi was actually an adopted daughter of Mia Farrow, who happened at the time to also be uh, in a relationship, a romantic relationship with Woody Allen for over a decade. And when that, when that scandal hit that he was having an affair with uh, her adopted daughter, the, the Hollywood film industry was rocked. And that's saying something for that, uh, that industry to be rocked by a scandal. Um, but so many people were questioning uh, Woody Allen's intentions. I mean, he was close to 40 years older than Soon Yi, but mo- most importantly, people were questioning uh, the propriety of him actually dating what a, kind of a, equated to be an adopted daughter of his. And so this 2001 interview is, is discussing um, sort of uh, Woody Allen's intentions. What were some of his thoughts? What were some of the things that he was processing? Why did he do what he did? And in sort of a summary fashion, at the very end of the, uh, the interview... Uh, the reporter asks him this question. He says, do you consider it a healthy and equal relationship? Um, of course, that's between Woody Allen and, and Soon um, Yi. And to which Allen replied, well, who knows? You know, the heart just sort of wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things. You meet someone and you fall in love and that's that. Now, it appears for a man like Woody Allen that all, all uh, decency can go out of the window for this idea of the heart wants what the heart wants. And we hear that sometimes. You know, like when we hear somebody do something that's just, you know, completely uh, uh, wicked or stupid, you know, they're saying, I don't know, I, I'm just kind of doing what my heart told me to do. And when we talk about the heart in this context, and when the Bible talks about the heart, we're not talking about the organ that pumps blood into all the members of our body, right? And when we talk about the heart, we're kind of, we're kind of uh, capturing the biblical idea of what the heart is. Listen to Proverbs 4.23. It says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And then the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is to say that the seed of emotion, our will, our desires, flow out from this thing called the heart. You know, it was interesting I want to pick up where Richard Scoggins left off last week when he was discussing Nehemiah. And, and I want you to know this is a testimony to God's sovereignty is that I did not, I did not uh, collaborate with Richard on this. This is like a, a, an unintentional, intentional uh, mini-series on the heart of, of, of believers towards God. And it's conveniently packed in between two books that are, are intimately related to each other, Nehemiah and Ezra. You know, most of us have probably not read those books in our time, and I wish we should. Ezra 7.10 and especially could easily be part of a, a family verse for the week um, because it's, a, it's an amazing uh, testimony to God's faithfulness to his people. Now, these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, they fall into what's called the historical books. All right, now I'm going to put on my, I, I guess, my seminary cap and just kind of give you an idea of, of what uh, is going on in that setting. Um, it's addressing or it's involving what's called the post-exilic people of God. And what that basically means, it's, it's the people, Israelites, that are now in exile and they're returning back into the land. Um, before that, here's, here's kind of a snapshot of what's happened in the historical books. Starting a little prior to that is Exodus. God is going to rescue or God rescues his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and brings them into the wilderness. 
and the people finally settle the land in Joshua, right? And, and what we see from Joshua there on is that, is that despite the fact that God has told his people to be faithful to him, to embrace the covenant in the heart, that they don't do that, and there's this downward spiral. That's where the story is going, and, and it keeps going down and down and down, and there's good kings sometimes, and there's good prophets, and then there's also wicked kings and wicked prophets. And, and it, the, the, the cycle is going down and down until we get to the prophet Jeremiah who predicts a time in which the people of God will be in exile. But with that judgment that God is saying because of Israel's unfaithfulness, there's a promise to return to the land. And so we see um, in the beginning of Ezra in chapter 1, Cyrus, king of Persia, makes a proclamation allowing the exiles of Israel to return back to the land. And in, in chapter 5 of Ezra, in chapter, or excuse me, chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra, there's about a 56-year gap. And then we finally get Ezra onto the scene in chapter 7. So that's where we're at today in Ezra um, in verse 10. Let me read, uh, starting at, in Ezra 8, because what happens is, is that the, the author of Ezra makes this wonderful observation about the content and character of, of Ezra's life. He says this, starting in verse 8, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now, what I want to point out is that prior to this point, Ezra had only known exile. That's where he was at. He was, he was a, a living being of God's judgment towards his people. And, you know, you wonder about Ezra, you know, as, you, as you're thinking through this, as you're meditating on it, I start to wonder, you know, what would it have been like for Ezra to have been a child and for, God, for the men around the, the fire or around the dinner table to talk about the days of Joshua, where, the, where Joshua and his men slew the Canaanites and they entered into the land... And there they are, and then they, the story moves to David, who's, who's a man after God's own heart. And it says that his son Solomon is, is praying, and, and he's dedicating the temple, and that the glory of the Lord dwells in the temple, and he's dwelling amongst the people. And you see the Queen of Sheba coming, and she's, she's to tears because of God's, God, because of, of this law and the wealth and just the, the goodness of this Lord that Israel is worshiping. And here Ezra is in exile. He's in exile. And, and, and so I, I read this verse and I wonder, what did, did Ezra doubt God's faith? Would there be an occasion for Ezra to doubt God's faithfulness? But what we see in verse, in verse 10 is that he, he doesn't, that despite that, he holds fast to the law. And I wonder that for ourselves here today. You know, I, again, like as I was praying, I don't know uh, your stories. I don't know where you're all at. I haven't met a lot of you. But I imagine there's some, there's some tragedy in our stories. There, there, there are some in mine. And I imagine that um, there are times that we're tempted to doubt God's faithfulness to us. You know, we, we read uh, news reports of the decline of the church, the rise in skepticism. Um, we read um, stories about uh, famine and civil wars. And we read local headlines that talk about assaults or, or murders. And in those moments and in our daily lives, there's this real temptation to, to doubt the faithfulness of God. And what I want to say, and what I think Ezra is, is addressing here, is saying, yes, God is faithful. He does love his children. 
He will bring all things to pass to, to His end for His glory. And so the point that uh, I want to, to work out and to flesh out is that because God is faithful to His people, we must set our hearts on Him. Now the question becomes, what does a heart set on God look like? And I believe Ezra's posture towards the Lord in this verse tells us rather explicitly what it is. First, and this is the point, first point I want to zero in on, um, go ahead and write that out if you want to switch the other side of paper since it's an improper outline, is that first a heart set on God seeks to pursue a godly lifestyle or live by God's word. Ezra first sets his heart to seek God's word or quite literally to pursue it. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, a, a famous um, scholar and preacher in uh, the First Great Awakening, says this, Godliness is a thing that has its seat originally in, a, in the heart. That is to say that out of our heart, a heart set on God, outflows godliness. Uh, it, I, I was looking a little bit and I saw that um, through some of the notes I had that in Hebrew, um, this actual verse, a uh, heart set on, on God, is actually talked about twice. And I, I gave you the citations for that. The first time is in 1 Samuel 7.3 and the second time is in 1 Chronicles 29.18. And it's a phrase that describes a heart set on God is, you, is, is basically used as an exhortation to remain faithful to the Lord. Why? Because God has been faithful to his people. If you read both contexts, it's, it's, it's an exhortation to stay, stay faithful despite the circumstances that are surrounding God's people. You see, if I just tell you to live by God's word, if I just say, be godly, right? I haven't really done anything other than just kind of moralize scripture. But if I tell you, because of what I see in scripture, is be faithful, be godly, because the Lord has been faithful and steadfast to us, well, that changes things. That gives us the occasion that gives us the relational element that we need to motivate us towards godliness. I think Exodus 19, 3-7 helps us to kind of frame what I'm trying to get to here. This is at the beginning of uh, the covenant at Sinai. And it says this. It says, There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus shall you, shall you, excuse me, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured, treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God's commands, his covenant is based on a relationship. And that relationship is God's redemptive act of saving, literally saving the Israelites and delivering them out of bondage of, uh, from Egypt. The request or the command for obedience is tethered by God's demonstration of steadfast love. So that when his people are tempted to set their hearts on something other than himself, they can remember his faithfulness to them and it can be a means of spurring us on to faithful, godly living. Um, as I said earlier, my prayer was that, that this sermon would be directed towards your hearts. A heart set on the Lord, when a heart is set on God, what, what, what's the result? I, I think, and what I've noticed in my own life, as I've kind of wor working this out, is that suddenly God's call 
those things that we call commandments, those, the, all, the, all those things that Paul exhorts us to, to embody in his epistles, they don't become a burden, right? There's a sense that the law is a burden, that we can't measure up to it, but there's another sense in it that it says that, that, that we can find joy in, in, in embodying God's character, embodying God's law in our lives and to other people, and so that a heart set on him, we start to obey freely with joy and with pleasure, uh, I was thinking about how this works out practically. Uh, I love my wife, Grace, dearly. And my, my wife is, is wonderful, and she has to put up uh, with my aloofness and my absent-mindedness all the time. I feel sorry for her, pray for her, because she has to bear with just my, my foibles. And there are times where uh, I'll, be, I'll be using a, a kitchen appliance, for say, and I'm not using it in the way it's supposed to be used at all, right? We have a nonstick pan, and I'm taking metal right to it. And I know some of you are cringing because that just ruins the surface, right? And she'll remind me, you know, Steve, just, just use something, you know, that can actually handle that kind of surface. And I'm like, okay, you know, well said. You know, she lovingly says this sort of thing. And then, you know, a day or so will pass and I'll, I'll be doing it again. And either I've just completely forgot or if I'm just honest in the moment, I, I just didn't care and I went ahead and, and used that metal anyhow, right? And she'll come back to me and she says, you know, Steve, I, I want us to have nice things and I really care about, you know, are, are things, and I, you know, I want you to, to care about those things as well. And when, when she says that, I, I realize how much of a fool I am. And why, why is that? Why would I be convicted by that? Because I love my wife. And a person that loves their spouse wants to please their spouse. There's this relational quality to it, right? When we love people, we want to please them, so we do what they ask. We take out the, we take out the trash when they ask us to. We pick up our, if you're a student, you pick up your rooms when, you, you, when your parents ask you to, and there should be this sense of disappointment in yourself when you're not living in a way that honors the loving relationship. And see, I think that's what, what, what God is, is after. We, we often, when we think about this issue, we miss the relational dynamic that's there. When we see God, the Lord, creator of everything known, and that he enters into covenant and relationship with his people. Like you, like literally you people sitting in these chairs and me. That changes things. Now all of a sudden our hearts are free. It's a relational element that we can love God. And, and, and we're free to enjoy the things that God loves and that God says are good. And I, and I think that that's, that's one way that we can, we can kind of think through this, these, these things together. So what I hope is that if you're saying to yourself, there's just not a lot of joy in my life, but maybe this is just a time today or this week of reflection of, of saying, God, what's going on? Is there, is there some sort of sin in my own heart that is keeping me from loving you unhindered? Is there an unfaithfulness in my heart that is not allowing me to be set towards you? The, the, the hope is this, is when I say this, is that ultimately, There is this thing called the affections, and I hope that it will stir the affections of your heart so much that the love for God will enter in, and any desire for unfaithfulness will be pushed out. That's that's what we're trying to accomplish in this, as far as doing and living godly lives. Now moving on to the second point, it's this. It's that a heart set on God seeks to teach and encourage righteousness. Now notice there the chain of verbs that Ezra has here. It says this, that Ezra first sets his heart, then to study, then to do, and finally to teach. All right, now, as I, 
uh, maybe some of the elders and some of you guys that are, are gifted in teaching here, and the way I'm tempted is that we, when you hear study and teach, that's all we want to hear, right? That's all we want to do. Study, teach, study, teach. That's great. But the teaching part comes after the doing. And that's very practical. That's, that's intentional. Because, because a person that preaches one thing and lives the other way is called a hypocrite. And rightfully so. That's okay. We should be... Uh, we should be taken back when somebody teaches a certain way of living and doesn't actually embody it. And what Ezra is shown to be doing is that the way in which he lives his life and the way he teaches his life are intimately connected. Now, that's a helpful correction, especially for uh, the elders here in the church, that you should be men who teach the Word of God with clarity, but to live accordingly. All right, that's, that's the call to you elders, especially here. That both your, your teaching and your lives would be reflective of that. But what I want to set out for the majority of this point is to exhort and encourage those that say, you know what, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not a teacher. Yes, it does. It does apply to you. We all have a part as, as people of God in this church to, to help exhort and build up the body of Christ. I want to reemphasize something that Mike Halpin said, and it was a sermon that I was listening to um, online. And he said to an effect that we live in a country where there is an abundance of food, that we'll probably never, we'll never know famine in this land. But what there is a famine of is the Word of God. And that stuck out, and I think it's, is it Malachi that that comes from? I don't know. I thought it was Malachi, but I'm not sure. But it was, it's very... Uh, poignant, that, that there's a truth to that. In this land today that there is a famine, I can remember going to Denver Seminary to visit uh, the seminary just as, as one of the places I was considering. And I was sitting down with a professor and we were having lunch. And uh, I asked him, I said, you know, I just want to get kind of on a head start of what you guys are thinking about. Is there a book that I could be reading or books that I could be reading? And he said, yeah, the Bible. And I, I kind of laughed. I'm like, okay, yeah, the Bible, of course. Seriously, like, what, what should I be reading? He's like, the Bible. He says, you know, Steve, here's the deal that you need to know is that I, I have been teaching for, for years and years and years and what I'm seeing is a steady in, a decline in the, in the biblical literacy of men and women who want to come to seminary to serve God. And I've heard the same observation from my professors at Covenant and, I'm, and I know that some of you who are, are much wiser and older than I am have probably noticed the same difference, that there's a steady decline in, the, in, in biblical proficiency amongst not only our culture, but in our churches itself. And usually it works out where if somebody that does know something about the Bible, or at least some people, they either uh, don't rightly interpret it, or they, 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 um, they misinterpret it, or they misteach it. And so now we have um, various uh, problems within the church. I, that would be a tangent. I'm not going to go down. But what I'm trying to say is that in reality is, is that there is a famine of God's Word, especially in this culture today. Now, um, what I want to read is an article out of the Atlantic magazine, just a, not a, the full article, just an excerpt, discussing the root causes for teenagers who grew up in Christian homes to turn to atheism. What were some of the factors? And I don't mean this, this isn't meant to just to scare you, it's meant to uh, just make an observation. See, this interviewer... Um, was going around and asking uh, college students who were Christians who had become atheists, what were some of the factors that went into your decision to become an atheist? 
And the one that stuck out, he, li- he listed about six different points. The one that really stuck with me was this, that they felt their church offered either a superficial or watered-down answers to life's questions. And here is specifically what the article says. It says, These students heard plenty of messages encouraging social justice, community involvement, and being good. But they seldom saw the relationship between the message, Jesus Christ, and the Bible. Listen to Stephanie, a student at Northwestern. The connection between Jesus and a person's life was not clear. This is an incisive critique. She seems to have intuitively understood that the church does not exist simply to address social ills, but to proclaim the teachings of its founder, Jesus Christ, and their relevance to the world. Since Stephanie did not see that connection, she saw little incentive to say. And we would hear this again. You know, what an indictment on, on to some extent, our, our church culture. Because there's this, there's this, uh, this tendency for us. If you're, in, if you're from more of a mainline background, it's to focus on kind of the social gospel, right? The, the, the social gospel frees us from all the different power structures of the world. And so there's this emphasis, this overemphasis on, on social justice and involvement and whatnot. But then on the other side, I think, what I've noticed is there's this other uh, swing in which uh, more conservative evangelical homes will not take seriously the questions that their students have. They're either dismissed as irrelevant or they're... Um, or they're seen as almost like doubting their faith. Like, why would you, why would you, why would you, why would you question that? And, and what I, what I want to say for you moms and dads that are here is that that is a rich time for you to explore the Word of God with your children, to take seriously their questions and some of the, the issues that they're bringing to their life and see because the Scripture is full. It provides an adequate worldview that answers all of life's questions. That, that, that what your goal would be to impress the Word of God on your children, the Old Testament especially, hits this over and over again. Psalm 78 is the, the one that I wanted you to, to have on your minds. And, you're, and when you're free, please look that up, but not now because I'm giving the sermon. Um, it, it's saying the importance of, of teaching further or future generations the Word of God. So fathers and mothers that have little ones or teenagers that are still at home, here's, what, here's my exhortation. Read the Word. Read the Word. Um, do family devotions, family worship. Those are great things. Daily. Also, pray with your children. And here's the most important thing. I think this is what we miss. Make sure that your children know that they live in a God-saturated world. Right? My, my daughter, Ruby Mae, loves the moon. She loves the stars. And uh, we'll sometimes go outside and I'll point and I'll say, Ruby, you see the moon up there? And she'll say, moon! And she'll point at stars. And then, she'll, and then I'll say, you know what, Ruby? God made those. He is so grand. He is so powerful that he can make those things that are far off in the sky. And yet God loves you. See, it doesn't take a lot. It just takes, it has to be on the, on the front of our mind just that the, the goodness and, and wonder of God is just saturated in all of life. Now, I've, I've talked a bit about mothers and fathers but I want to spend the, the last bit of this point talking to you who are single, uh, perhaps you're empty nesters, perhaps your grandparents. I want to spend some time because, um, because you're important. Let me tell you something. You that I just mentioned, you are an indispensable member of this community. I really mean that. I mean that with utter conviction that the community here, this, this church body, 
thrives on your involvement in this community. And when we talk about teaching, you might say, well, what does that look like? Well, what I'm saying is that I've had conversations with some of you that fit this category. And the amount of wisdom that God has given you and understanding is incredible. And I want to admonish you because you have something to say that, that, that is helpful in spurring us and growing us up into godliness. And so you have a very important role in this community. So, and if somebody wants to come afterwards and just talk to me about what that looks like fleshed out practically, you know, some of the thoughts that I, were ha- that I was having was, you know, if you're in a small group or when you're in a Bible study or um, in uh, a Sunday school lesson, by all means, let us know what God is doing in your life and how he's teaching you about his truth so that we can all be admonished and built up in Christ. You know, it could be something just as simple as as just an after-church or before-church conversation with somebody else. But what I want you to know, you specifically, that you you are vital to this community, that this community thrives on your ability to exhort and admonish us as together as we grow out in Christ's likeness to um, live out the mission of God. Um, in closing, I want to read you an account. And I tried to fact check it. You know, you find stuff on the internet, you don't know how reliable they are. But uh, I, I found it was actually quoted in a couple books prior to the internet. So I, I have reason to believe that it is, it is true, that it is accurate. Um, so bear with me with that in mind. Um, some of you may know who David Hume was. He was a famous uh, Scottish philosopher of the 18th century. Really, he was just a renaissance man, a brilliant man. Um, huge skeptic, didn't believe in the miracles of the Bible, didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. At best, he was a deist. But let me tell you something. There was one morning that it was reported that when David Hume, David Hume got up at 5 o'clock in the morning, the reason why he got up so early was because he was going to see George Whitfield preach. George Whitfield was a, another um, uh, great, prominent, prominent British-American uh, pastor, pastor and preacher. He was also another leader of the Great Awakening. And so uh, David Hume, as it goes, was getting out at 5 o'clock. He's rushing out. He's going around a corner, and he runs into somebody. And the guy says, aren't you David Hume? And he says, yes. Yes, I am. Kind of a big deal. He says, where are you going? He didn't really say that. Um, where are you going this early hour, he says. And he says, well, I'm going to hear George Whitfield preach. And the guy was stunned. He says, you don't believe a word Whitfield preaches. And Hume answered, he says, no, I don't. But he does. He does. Whitfield, by all accounts, was a man who taught with conviction and lived with conviction. He was a man who embodied what we're getting at, a heart that's set on God, both to live and to teach. So let me ask you this morning, how is your heart? Where are we at? I know there's a lot of, there's a rush of life that we can kind of glaze by that sort of question, but how is your heart? Is it set towards God? I want to reemphasize this, that because God is faithful to his people, that I have the biblical warrant to commend you all to live godly lives and to teach godliness. You know, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were sort of the best of the best. I mean, in the post-exile community. That was kind of the highlight. They have this revival. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the altar. And that's about as good as it gets. 
And what you see in the history, especially um, later on, is that Israel would be conquered over and over and over again. To the point where so, now some of the teachers of, of, of Israel were kind of questioning God. They said, God, is, is God still faithful? Is he still going to do what he said he's going to do? And you know, as Christians, we are living, breathing embodiments of God's faithfulness to Israel. Because God said that through Christ, he was going to be a blessing to the nations. Jesus in his life, his death, and his ministry, or excuse me, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we see this, that the old ancient promise of Genesis 3.15 in which God says, I will crush the head of Satan, finds its fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He is faithful to his promises. So for some of us here today, I just, I, my prayer is that this will be a, a source of renewal for your hearts and for some of you here that may not know Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, I would just say that um, there's this tendency, there's two tendencies in our culture. First is that we believe that we can be good enough to get to heaven. And that is a lie. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. You cannot be good enough to get to heaven. And that's kind of the modern mentality, right? But now with some of us, like myself, we're growing up in this postmodern culture where we believe that if we just can do what we want to do, just, I just want to have my experience that I'm free and let me tell you something. You are not free if you do not know Christ. You are, you are a slave to sin. There is only freedom in Christ. And so my, my prayer for you all today is for some that this would be a sense of heart renewal, but for others that you would set your heart on Christ for the first time, that you would realize that God is faithful to his people and that you would set your hearts on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, you are so kind to us. Lord, that my own story is a story of waywardness, of not living the way I ought to live. And I know that's true for others here too, as well. And Father, the, 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 the wonder and mystery of, of Christ and the cross is that you declare us clean, that you declare us justified. And Lord, that is not something that I could ever completely grasp, that we could ever completely grasp, but we know it's true. Lord, that you have been faithful to us, that you have redeemed us from death so that we might have life, that you have been kind to us. Father, I pray that we that you might bring back to our memories for those of us who are struggling just to get by, just to live each day, day after day, that you would bring to our memories times of just obvious faithfulness, that you would work in our hearts so that we might be able to live godly lives and to teach godly principles with joy. Father, for some of us, I pray that this would be just a time of renewal, and if necessary, repentance, that we would own up and say that we have not been living the way in which we were supposed to live, and it's only by your grace, Lord, that we can have fellowship with you. But Father, I just pray that as a community who grows in godliness and in Christ's likeness, Lord, that we would encourage and admonish each other, that we would realize that we have an actual role in this community. Thank you, Lord, for your son Jesus 
in whom we have redemption. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.